As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We feast on the abundance of your house and you give us to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. We pray that you would continue your steadfast love towards those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. And may your spirit shine in our hearts now through his word to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, and we're going to read the first nine verses together. Uh, we're resuming a study that we paused to consider a series about Christmas. So we're returning to our series in Proverbs, and this is how far we had gotten before. So Proverbs chapter 4, so picking up our study at verse 1 and reading through verse 9. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. And be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget And do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. As I said, we're kind of returning to a series on Proverbs uh, that we paused for uh, a few weeks. And so it's good to come back to this. And this is a good passage for us to return to Proverbs and consider because it's something of a reintroduction to what we've seen In the book of Proverbs, another uh, back to basics kind of text uh, where we return to a father giving instruction uh, to his son. We've seen that over and over again as we've considered the first three chapters of this book. Um, A father coming to his son to instruct his son. These are specifically, we're told, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. And so this is the king's wisdom to his son. And we've seen a general pattern. Um, In that wisdom, as it's come, as the father has come to his son, he sort of begins the same way, telling him to listen up, to pay attention to what he says, and then he gives a lesson about what he wants the son to hear, Um, and then he promises his son the blessings of what will happen if he hears. Uh, That's been a pretty standard way he's proceeded, a kind of introduction to listen, the lesson itself, and then the promises that, that follow that lesson if it's learned. 
Um, that's been a fairly standard way of going about it. So <clears throat> we've seen this kind of pattern of instruction before, uh, but Solomon does something new here. We see something in this instruction that we've not seen before. And that's the instruction is given, it seems, to multiple sons. Uh, notice how it's a little bit different in verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Um, Solomon is not just speaking to one son here. Uh, he speaks to many. And he does something interesting from our perspective as well by mentioning his own instruction in wisdom from his father. Um, I almost called this sermon Grandpa's Wisdom uh, because that's what the main lesson is about. Solomon's saying, now this is the, son, this is the lesson I learned from my father. Um, and those of us who are interested in the scriptures and interested in, in what King David might have said as a father to his sons, uh, that might pique our interest to hear this sort of wisdom. And Solomon is saying, this is wisdom not just for my son, this is wi wisdom for all sons in the generations to come. This is sort of the intergenerational wisdom of Hebrews, of what the principal thing is that God's people should be concerned about. Um, wisdom for every generation. Um, and what does that every gen what is it that every generation really needs to understand about wisdom? Well, is that wisdom holds the secret to being truly alive. It's it's the secret to life for the godly. It's the secret for being truly alive, and it's the lesson that needs to be learned in every generation. That's the real the thrust of what Solomon is doing here by quoting the lesson he had from his father. Um, to show that wisdom really is the secret to being truly alive in every generation, truly alive as God describes it. And so what do we find in this passage as we go through? We find that there's guidance to be heard. That's the first thing that we need to pay attention to. There's guidance to be heard. Secondly, there's a goal to be sought. We want to pay attention to the goal to be sought. And finally, there's glory to be enjoyed. Uh, by those who follow this lesson. Uh, so that's how we want to think about this text together. Guidance to be heard, glory to be sought, and glory to be enjoyed. Now, what is the guidance that's to be heard? Well, as I said, something interesting is happening at the beginning of verse 1 when it's multiple sons being addressed. And we can think of that in one of two ways. We can think either of Solomon gathering many sons together and talking to many at once, but that's not the sense in which this is being used. It's sons in, a, in the line of generations to come. It's sons and their sons and their sons. This is the lineage of David that Solomon really is speaking to. Uh, sons throughout the generations. This is the departure of what he's usually said. Hear my son, your father's instruction. That's usually how he's begun. But now this is different. This is to the generations to come. This is general, generational wisdom, not just from Solomon, but Solomon is, is using this as an opportunity to say, I am not the fountain of all wisdom. It doesn't begin with me. It begins before me in the generations. It, wisdom isn't uniquely mine. I had to learn it from my father. Um, and it's interesting to, to say to your, to your son, I remember back when I was a son. Um, sometimes children don't think that you can ever have been a child. Um, I know as a pastor talking to children, sometimes they're amazed that I was ever a child. Well, boys and girls, there was a time when I was a boy or girl. I was not a girl. I was a boy. <laughs> Scratch that. 
Can we, can we do something about the tape there? This is, sermon just took a really bad turn. Um, that is not what I meant to talk about today. Um, I used to be a boy, boys and girls. Um, sometimes people have a hard time believing that uh, when you're an adult. But adults used to be children, right? We had a time when we had to listen to parents, or we depended on parents' instruction. And Solomon is saying that to his sons, to every generation, saying, you know, all of you will have been sons and will one day, if God wills it, be fathers. And you will need to know how to instruct the generations to come. Uh, just as we needed instruction. This is intergenerational wisdom that he's introducing, the importance of this being heard, so that every generation would learn the wisdom of the generations that have come before it. And that's what we do as a church. That's what we do as a people of God. We don't try to construct the truth anew for ourselves in every generation. We lean on the wisdom that's come before us. We lean on the saints that have come before us, we learn the lesson. The, he, the book of Hebrews calls on us to listen to the cloud of witnesses that have come before us, uh, to listen to the previous generations, to understand their wisdom. And that kind of idea has fallen, I think, in our age on, on hard times. Um, C.S. Lewis has called it you know, chronological snobbery, uh, that sort of what's newest has to be what's best and has to replace what's come before it. But we hear that all the time, you know, that that was the old way of thinking, and we have a new way of thinking. Uh, now we're on the right side of history. I always love that one in particular. Now we're on the right side of history. The sort of the arrogance of saying, every generation that's come before us in the history of the world has been wrong on this. We finally figured it out. Um, and you want to ask the question, is that more likely, or is it more likely that every generation understood what was so obvious um, and it's taken an unbelievable amount of arrogance and ignorance to come to a different opinion in our day. Um, we need to listen to the voices of the past. There's wisdom there. We don't need to listen uncritically, but we ought to listen, uh, particularly to the godly, uh, who can tell us something from their wisdom, faithfully teach us. The Psalms do that all the time. Come, children, listen to me. And I'll tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. Um, we can learn from wisdom in every generation. It was interesting. One commentator quoted G.K. Chesterton on this passage. He said, Hester Chesterton said this, Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion even if he is our servant. Tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion even if he is our father. And that's one of the glorious things about the people of God. We can learn from the former generations of the godly. Uh, they can speak to us as Solomon can speak to his sons of the wisdom he learned from his father. The godly can speak even though they're dead. Well, that's one of the glorious statements of the beginning of the heroes of the faith. In, he in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we read, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, 
and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His faith still speaks, even though he's dead. Um, The voice of the godly needs to be heard. We need to learn from what they have to say. And that's what Solomon is urging his sons, his generational sons, the lineage of David, to really hear. To hear the wisdom of the generations that's come before. To hear it and not forsake it. Uh, His guidance always comes in the same kind of form. And it becomes clear he learned this too from his father. The importance of coming and saying you need to hear. But you also need to listen. And you need to retain it. You need to hear it. You need to listen to it. And you need not to forsake it. Right? It's one thing to hear good instruction. It's another thing to listen to it. We've all probably met people who have to learn everything it seems the hard way. Um, who might have heard but didn't listen. Um, and had to learn a more difficult lesson through it. The, the calling that comes here from the generations of the wisdom of God's kings is hear what the Lord has to say and listen to it. Obey it. And retain it. Don't forsake it. Don't ever leave it. It's life for us. Um, And Solomon himself is testifying to the advantage of growing up in a home like that. It's a beautiful picture of his home life in verse 3. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. When I was tender, that's a way of saying, you know, I was just a, a little kid, just sort of Weaned, maybe three or four years old. So here's a picture of when Solomon was just a little tyke, right? But his father was already teaching him. Uh, He was was tender, but his father was still speaking to him about what he needed to know. Uh, When he was the only one in the sight of his mother. That's a way of saying beloved, right? The only one, the beloved one. Isaac was the only son to Abraham. Um, he was the son of promise, the precious one. It's, it's this beautiful picture of a home in which the father was caring for Solomon by instructing him. His mother was caring for him by loving him. Um, and he was responding as an obedient son. Uh, it might seem a kind of strange thing to say, when I was a son with my father, wasn't he always a son with his father? Why would he say, when I was a son with my father? But it has a sense here of being the true son of his father. And in Hebrew thought, sonship was not so much a matter of biology. It was a matter of obedience. Uh, That's why it shouldn't have been a surprise when Jesus was preaching to the Jewish leaders and said to them, you know, if you were a true son of Abraham, you would do as Abraham did. That's what it really means to be a son of Abraham, to be obedient as Abraham was obedient. Um, Jesus was saying our biology doesn't have as much to do with our being a son of Abraham as our obedience has to do with our being a son of Abraham. And Hebrew thought that's what a son was. It was an obedient son. That's what a true son was. And that's what Solomon is saying. It's a beautiful picture of the home in which David was instructing and his mother was supporting that instruction in love. And Solomon was responding as a true son with obedience to what his father had to say. And what is the specific lesson that Solomon calls to mind when he thinks about this instruction that he received 
in the home? What is the thing he wants to highlight for the generations? How his father came to him and from a tender age instructed him about the secret to being really alive before the Lord. That's the lesson that he begins to talk about in verse 4. He taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. That he was passing on to his son the wisdom of God. He was passing on to his son the commandments of God. He was passing on to his son the secret of being really alive. And telling him, hear what I have to say. Let your heart hold fast to my words. Again, in in Hebrew thought, the heart is the control center of all of life. That's why it's the heart that needs to hold to the words of God that are being delivered by the Father. The heart is, as one person put it, the center of life. Emotional, intellectual, religious, moral control center. That's what needs to hold fast to the words. So with the heart having holding fast, with the control center holding the commands, then it lives itself out in the life of the Son. Because it's keeping God's words, it's clinging to God's words, it's holding on to God's words in the heart that promises life. Um, The kind of life that God promises, not the kind of life the world promises, the kind of life that we read about in Proverbs 3 verse 4, where you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Favor and good insight in the sight of God and man. That's what it means to be truly alive. To to receive the favor of the Lord. To be thought of as one who has insight before the Lord. That's what it means to be really alive. To be living a life that pleases God. Um, That really is the secret to life. And that's important for us to know because there are many people who will define what it means to be really alive today in far different terms. What it means to really live and to really take control of your life. Um, Lots of people will tell you what that means. We need to listen to what God's word tells us it means. Particularly young people need to do that. Because there are a lot of competing voices um, in the world that will tell you what it means to be really alive. Um, and we need to listen to what God's word tells us it means to be really alive. Because when we're young, we're particularly susceptible. That's why David didn't start with Solomon when he was a teenager. He started with him when he was tender, when he was three, um, at a really young age to begin to teach him why. So he would learn the lesson. As one commentator put it, youthful passions may lead a young person to seek after personal pleasures that won't last. God wants you to live a life that lasts. I'm a life that's blessed by him, that is favorable in his sight. And where is that to be found? Well, that's the lesson that David teaches in verses 5 through 9. It's the guidance to be heard. All this is preparatory to listen to what's being said. So what is the goal to be sought? What is the real thing that we should be after? Um, in this passage. Well, actually, that's not really that hard for us to, to understand the goal to be sought because it's repeated so many times. Um, this is important for us to have good instruction repeated to us, right? What should we do? What's the goal to be sought in this passage? Get wisdom. Get insight. 
um, that's really clear. It's repeated often enough that we understand the importance of it, the, the mere fact that it's repeated. Get wisdom. Um, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Um, that's, that's, you know, we can't miss it really if we look at this and say, what's the main point? It's, it's get wisdom. That's the main point. It's repeated enough to emphasize the importance of it. That getting wisdom is the main thing. Uh, the principal thing is get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. That's The beginning of wisdom is another way of saying this is the principal thing. This is the chief thing. This is the most important thing. Not just that you begin here and move on, but this is the fundamental thing of life. This is the chief thing to be aimed at. What are we to do? We're to get wisdom. We're to get insight. We're to get it at all costs. Whatever you get, get wisdom. Um, That has the sense of make of all your acquisitions acquire wisdom. Um, it's, It's another way of saying it's worth giving up everything else you have to get this. It should remind us of, and maybe this was in the background of what our Lord said about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Wisdom is to be treated like that treasure in the field, like that pearl of great price. It's worth having even if you have to give up everything else you have to get it. Then get it. Whatever you get, get wisdom. Uh, Get that. And I like how one commentator put it. This could be a blunt way of saying what it takes is not brains or opportunity, but decision. Do you want it? Come and get it. It's the most important thing. It's worth giving up everything else for. Whatever you get, get wisdom. Now, we can't be sure about this. I'm going to enter into a little speculation, so I'm going to tell you right off the bat it's speculation. But maybe this was in the background of Solomon's mind, his instruction at a young age when God came to him and said to him, what do you want? I'll give you anything. Ask of me and I'll give you anything. Maybe he remembered this lesson of his father. Whatever you get, get wisdom. Get insight. Maybe it was that instruction of his father from an early age that prepared him when God said, what do you want above everything else? He said, above everything else, I want wisdom. It might be a way of saying, my father told me. He prepared me for this day. What do I need? I need wisdom. I need wisdom. Whatever you get, get wisdom. It's it's that language of acquisition. This word is is translated elsewhere, buy it. Um, Buy it. It's a way of, it's the language of acquiring something. Make it yours. Make it yours at all costs. And once you make it yours, don't let it go. It's worth everything you have to get it. And once you've got it, don't let it go. Cling to it. Um, why should we value it so highly? Because it's the principal thing. It's the thing once you find it, you should cling to it. 
Never let it go. Maybe that's why the passage shifts to kind of think of Lady Wisdom once again in kind of language of personification um, and, and thinks of it in, in the language of marital love. Uh, Lady Wisdom personified, and the text is full of language that we usually associate with love and marriage. Um, do not forsake her, love her, prize her, embrace her. Uh, once you've found her, don't let her go. Uh, the way the Proverbs will talk about getting a good wife. Once you've found her, don't let her go. Don't forsake her. Love her. Prize her. Embrace her. Um, it's a blessing that's found. All of these are images of a husband clinging to a dearly loved wife. And maybe that's the image that is brought to mind for Solomon because love is one of the strongest pulls there is in life. Song of Solomon says, love is stronger than death. Um, this is, this is as, as, as best uh, an analogy that Solomon can think of to how we should prize wisdom and love wisdom and cling to wisdom. Love that's not just the language of, of love and marriage, but it's really the language of law-keeping. Um, the lo- love is the language of law-keeping. One commentator said, the language of obedience and of emotion and spiritual commitment to love is to set one's sincere affections on something. And particularly when we talk about love the Lord your God, that's the language of law-keeping. But that language of love is more than just a mere duty, right? The language of love evokes plenty of other associations. To set one's sincere affections on the covenant of the Lord and to give its affection in its expression in loyal service. Right? A husband clings to a dearly loved wife and does his duty, not merely because it's his duty. You, know, you don't sit down and like flip back through your marital vows and say, well, I did promise to honor you, so I guess I've got to. Uh, that's not you know, the makings of a good marriage if it's just merely duty. Marriage as it is supposed to exist and it's ideally pictured to us is love driving that duty. It's love that causes us to live that life out in mutual affection. It's why the marriage is supposed to be a picture of, of mutual benefit. And that's why I think this language is so poignant for Solomon because just as clinging to a dearly loved wife and doing what you're called to do before the Lord is a product of your love living itself out in service, there's also a mutual benefit to be enjoyed. Um, Cling to her as you would cling to the wife you love. Embrace her, prize her, don't let her go. Um, But also know that Just as a dearly loved wife is a blessing to a husband, so wisdom will be a blessing to all those who find it. Wisdom is not just the goal to be sought, but the glory to be enjoyed. Um, There's this wonderful promise of reciprocation, that the love will be returned, that there will be a value returned to those who don't forsake wisdom. Those who do not forsake wisdom, wisdom doesn't forsake. Those who cling to wisdom find that wisdom clings to them. Right? Just as God's purpose in marriage is mutual blessing, so here, those who cling to wisdom will enjoy the blessings of that life together. And so what are the blessings that wisdom promises to those who don't forsake her, to those who love her, to those who prize her, to those who embrace her? 
Well, the first blessing is protection. Um, We've seen this before, but we see it again. What is the blessing that comes from wisdom? What does she do for those who, who cling to her? Do not forsake her, verse 6 says, and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. Wisdom looks after us. As we personify wisdom, it looks after us. The, the commandments of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord, they watch over us in this life. They keep us from getting ourselves involved in the things that we should stay away from. Right? Wisdom comes and says to us, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Stay away. Wisdom watches over us. When we stumble and fall, wisdom tells us, here's how you get out of this. Here's how you find refuge. Wisdom watches over us. Wisdom watches over us in all circumstances of life, even in death. It's one of the reasons we love the wisdom of God in the word is because it protects us. It protects us in the first place from us. I love the Lord's wisdom because it protects me from William's wisdom. Uh, That's not a wisdom to be relied on for life. It protects me from myself. It protects me from my enemies. It protects me from all those voices in the world that are always telling me what wisdom is when it isn't. From the foolishness that masquerades as wisdom. It protects us. It watches over us. But the second blessing is wonderful too. It not only protects us, it honors us. Those who find find wisdom and cling to wisdom find the glory of the honor of wisdom. Particularly for the line of kings, it was important to know this is where true exaltation and honor come from. Not from a great kingdom or many horses or much great power or great wealth. Where does true glory come from? It comes from walking with God. That's what will elevate your status and authority. That's what will make you an influential leader for good. Wisdom will exalt you. She will honor you. And she will crown you with beauty. Uh, honor is not, just, is not just a lofty state, but a beautiful kind of exaltation. There are all kinds of people who put themselves forward and try to exalt themselves Um, But the wonderful promise of of wisdom is those who find that will not only be honored, but there will be a beauty to it. She will crown you, verse 9. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. That's not the crown that symbolizes royalty. That's the crown that symbolizes a victor. The kind of crown that was awarded when you competed in the Olympic Games and, and came out on top. It's the victor's crown. Wisdom promises not just that she will give you the victor's crown, but she will make that crown beautiful. It will intensify and enhance the beauty and authority of the one who wears it. It's a wonderful promise of glory. And if we think about this in in the autobiographical sense, both David and Solomon could testify to this kind of glory. Could testify to how the wisdom of God had exalted them. How serving the Lord had led to glory and honor and beauty. God would say to David, I took you from following sheep to lead the people of God. I exalted you 
He knew what it was to walk with the Lord and to be exalted, to be made beautiful in the sight of God and men. Solomon knew that, knew what it was to be glorified in the sight of men, to rule over the glory of the kingdom of David, to have David win that peace and Solomon to be the great king of that peace, advancing the kingdom, building the house of the Lord. In all of that wisdom, they could speak to what it was to be blessed and to enjoy the glory of wisdom. But if we think about their autobiographies, we can also think about the fact they could both testify to what happens when you forsake wisdom. They were not perfect kings. And there's much in both of their kingdoms to see the glory of when they were wise. But sadly, we can look to their kingdoms and also see the folly that they walked into and the glory they missed when they forsook wisdom. They both had tragic times of forsaking wisdom and dealing with the consequences. You know, it's an idyllic picture that Solomon gives of his home life, of his father and his mother. But if we remember who Solomon's mother was, she was Bathsheba. And to bring up that name in context of David is to bring up his sin and failure as a king and as a man. And there should be something of a pulling on our heartstrings when we hear that he is the only son of his mother. Why was Solomon the only son of his mother? Because the son of their adultery was lost in infancy on account of their sin. Uh, Solomon was given by the Lord to them to comfort them in their loss. And so they could both testify to the cost of forsaking wisdom. The cost of not exalting her, not clinging to her, not prizing her. So they serve as both a, a blessing and a warning to every generation that comes after them. And we might think to ourselves, especially at this late hour, what is exactly the lesson to be learned then? If they, if they both say with one voice, get wisdom, but these two incredibly wise men missed it and failed so badly, what hope is there for any of us? Well, of course, the hope is to be found in the lineage of sons that these fathers are speaking to. Son after son came. And some clinged to wisdom to their glory in part and some denied it and forsook it and fell. But the lineage of wisdom still passed down through the ages of sons until it came to one son in particular. Until it came to the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of God and the son of David and the son of Solomon. And came to someone who clung to wisdom. Who got wisdom and who triumphed in wisdom, and who was crowned with glory, who was protected by wisdom so that his life could not be taken from him. It had to be laid down of his own accord. Who comes to us as the true wisdom of God, who promises to give us life in his name. And so in the wisdom of God, as he reveals it through the generations, who is the wisdom incarnate that we must cling to. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God come in the flesh 
and we are cling to him if we want to have life. To the faithful son of David who lived and did everything that an earthly son was called to do and who comes as the true son of God who can offer real life. How can we find favor in the sight of God and insight? It's by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ who promises that he will protect all those who cling to him. That he will honor all those who honor him. That he will give us the victor's crown and cause it on our heads to shine. That's the promise that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the calling this passage ultimately calls us to, to say, you know what the beginning of wisdom is? Get him. Cling to him. Find him at all costs. And once you find him, don't let him go, ever. Because he is life. He is favor. He is ultimately all that matters. Love him, cling to him. Seek his commandments with all your heart, and in him you will find life. May we all search for Jesus above all treasures and find him and cling to him by faith and never let him go. Sure that we will enjoy the glory that he promises us all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this wisdom of generations of the godly to follow and ultimately fulfilled the wisdom of generations in your son. We pray that we would look to Christ for all wisdom and count all that the world has to offer as wisdom as folly. That we would truly seek to cling to him. That our hearts would hold fast to the words of wisdom that we would keep your commandments and find life by faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to cling to him and out of a love for him to do what is pleasing in his sight, uh, that we would use our lives to serve him, being assured that he will protect us as our great king, defending us in the salvation that he's won for us, and that he will honor us, that those who honor you before men, he will honor before you. And so we pray that we would think about that crown that he will award to all those who love him and long for his appearing of the victor's crown that he has made beautiful by his victory through the cross. And may we always look to him for our hope and cling to him, seek him above all things and never let him go. Father, we thank you for the faith you've given to us as the gift of the Holy Spirit. May all here know what it is to believe in Christ and live. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.